read from a 108th Psalm these words. This is a Psalm of David. You may remember in the first six verses of Psalm 108, we read these words. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing, I will sing praises even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praises to thee among the nations. For thy loving kindness is great above the heavens, and thy truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, that thy glory above all the, and thy glory above all the earth, that thy beloved may be delivered. Save with thy right hand and answer me. Father, we do thank you that you are the almighty creator of the universe, that nothing is too hard for you. God in three persons who empowers us through the Holy Spirit. And Father, we trust that the Holy Spirit will be with us this day to enlighten our eyes as we look at your word. Lord, we would sing praises with our hearts to you, knowing, Lord, that you never leave us nor forsake us. You are with us in the hard times. You are with us in the good times. And Lord, both are for our strengthening and our edification. Lord, may we accept the bad with the good and be willing to walk faithfully with you in all situations. Lord, I, I thank you that you have heard and answered our prayers. And I thank you that the spirit of the living God is the one who is the great teacher. And we trust in him to be our strength this day. And throughout this church complex, as the word is proclaimed in various classes and in the auditorium as Dr. Giovanetti ministers, Lord, we just pray that your presence will be powerfully sensed by each. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. We were, if you may remember, in the eighth chapter of 2 Samuel. The first part of that chapter dealt with the construction of the Davidic Empire. You remember we talked about David's defeat of the surrounding peoples there in the land that we today call Israel or Palestine, depending on which perspective you're looking at it from. Most Muslims don't like to use the word Israel except in a hissing way. You know. But these lines here depict the Davidic Empire at its maximum height. And you remember they absorbed many of the Aramean peoples. The t people today are called Syrians. And even in scripture, they're sometimes referred to as Syrians, but not all of them, but those that lived through this region in here. They also lived up over in here in Hamath, which was not absorbed. Other peoples like the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites and all the other ites were, were absorbed. The only ones that weren't totally absorbed were uh, the Philistines, although they were under Israelite hegemony and the Phoenicians that lived in a kind of a symbiotic relationship with Israel, each kind of helping the other in, in some ways. And they had two, two different orientations. The Phoenicians were a sea-oriented people. The Israelites were not. And so this is the empire that God gave David. And David makes it very clear that it was God's doing, that God was the one who empowered him to be able to build this empire. And so as you read through the story of David, you find that he's constantly giving glory to God 
for the victories, for the successes, and even in the midst of the trials. And, and you read much of his praise and his prayer as you, as you read through the Psalms, because as we know, many of them were written by David even as these verses were in the Psalm we read this morning. So this is where we are. David has established this, this empire, which of course on a world scale is still a very small territory. You know, it, it's hard for us when, to put this all in perspective without comparable places around. But if you were to put California on this map, of course California would go clear off the map, uh, you know, and virtually, well, maybe not so much width-wise, but this way. Because the modern state of Israel uh, would go into San Bernardino County two and a half times. You know, San Bernardino County, of course, is the largest county in the U.S., but it's still 20,000. Israel's only 8,000 square miles. And Lebanon is only 4,000 square miles. So we're talking about a very uh, small area. This, this is more than, than 8,000 square miles, but it's probably uh, you know, more, more than 16 or 18,000 square miles. So it's still a small area here. But nevertheless, it was an important empire. And virtually all the kings of all the regions around knew who David was. And they respected him because every battle he fought, he won. And so most of them were not willing to engage him in battle. This particular passage we're going to look at this morning, which is in the 8th chapter, beginning of verse 15, speaks specifically about what happens after the empire has been established. So reading in verse 15, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abathar, were priests, and Saraiah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were chief ministers. So, what we have in that passage, which some might read and say, well, I wasn't too inspired by that passage, you know. But what we have here is a, is a kind of a summary of David's administration. His reign was characterized by just and equitable administration. Just and equitable administration. The kind of administration that is God-ordained. The kind of administration we all wished we could live under anywhere on this planet, but it is lacking everywhere. David was not only a great warrior, but an extraordinarily fair and righteous ruler. It has been said that the best type of rule in the world is not democracy. The best type of rule in the world is benevolent monarchy, where you have a, a king who has all power and his word is law, but everything he does is for the good of his people. That's heaven. <laughs> and it's never been on earth. Oh, we've had, there, there have been absolute monarchies in the world, but they've generally not been benevolent. So much was David extraordinarily fair and righteous in his judgment and his administration that all of the later rulers of Israel, or many of them at least, would be compared to David when discussion was made of them. Just for example, let me turn back to the 23rd chapter of 2 Samuel. In order for David to rule justly and to give good administration to this empire, there is no way that one man or one person, male or female, could rule all of that territory all by himself without help. You can't be everywhere. As a result, he had to establish an administration. And we see a little bit of that administration as we look at this particular passage. 
Now, when it comes to bureaucracies, this is a pretty small bureaucracy. <laughs> uh, we have a Byzantine bureaucracy in this country, as do many of the large countries of the world. But this is a very small but effective one. First of all, we have here his nephew Joab. We know something about Joab, don't we? Joab served as commander of the army of Israel all the way until the end of the reign of David. He could be bold, he could be treacherous, but Joab was a good military commander. Secondly, we have a man called Jehoshaphat. Now, his name's going to appear elsewhere in Scripture. Jehoshaphat means <coughs> Jehoshaphat, the Lord judges, the Lord is judge. He, was, he is the recorder, and the Hebrew here literally means rememberer, the one who remembers. And so his, his job was primarily to be in charge of the official documents, the annals, and he was also the supervisor of protocol. Thirdly, we have Zadok and Ahimelech. Now, Zadok means righteous. Ahimelech means my brother is king. These two men served as leading priests, and the question is, how come there are two? Why, why, why are two high priests being mentioned here? And it seems that they each represented one of the two branches of the Aaronic family. Let me turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 24. 1 Chronicles chapter 24. We read this beginning at verse 1. Now the descendants of Aaron were these. The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no sons. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests. And David with Zadok, the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech, the sons of Ithamar, divided them according to their offices for their ministry. Since more chief men were found from the descents of Eleazar than from the descents of Ithamar, they divided them thus. There were sixteen heads of fathers' households of the descents of Eleazar and eight of the descents of Ithamar according to their fathers' household. Thus they were divided by lot, the one as the other, for they were officers of the sanctuary and officers of God, both from the descents of Eleazar and the descendants of Ithamar. So there were two main houses of priests of the Aaronic line in Israel. So these two men, one represents one and the other represents the other. And so you have Zadok and Ahimelech here both. Zadok's family, the one that will become the main high priestly family in the future. While the line of Ahimelech, that's the one that came through Eli. Remember Eli? And the fact that most of Eli's uh, descendants were wiped out by Saul after the priest Ahimelech had given to David the showbread and the sword of Goliath when he was hiding from Saul, and Saul got so mad he wiped out all of the priests. Well, those were the sons of Eli, so Ahimelech represents that particular line, but it is about to, to perish from the scene totally. It was his father, Abiathar, who had escaped the slaughter. You remember when Saul killed all the priests. One of them escaped, and he took the ephod with him and brought it to David while David was in hiding. We studied that before. While Scripture has little to say about Ahimelech, we're going to find it has a lot to say about Zadok. Fourthly, we have Sarah. Sarah's name means Yahweh has persisted. And he was secretary. As secretary, he apparently was the chief scribe, and it seems that he was also treasurer. So he's kind of like secretary of the treasury and, and so forth. And then we have Benaiah. 
Now, Benea's name is going to show up a lot more as we go on further. Uh, the word Benea means Yahweh builds. He was captain of David's bodyguard. Now, there's some uncertainty as to the exact origin of the, and meaning of the terms Karathites and Pelathites. We read those, and, and they do show up several times in Scripture, Karathites and Pelathites. But the context in every situation makes it very clear that they were an elite royal bodyguard. So whenever you see the Karathites and the Pelathites, this was a royal bodyguard, sort of like a Green Beret group that was committed to defending the king's person specifically. So some believe that the word Karathite and the word Pelathite originate from common nouns in the Hebrew, which imply persons who execute the king's commands and persons who carry the king's commands throughout the land. But the people who believe that are the minority. The majority of the scholars believe that Karathite and Pelathite are proper nouns. They refer to names of people groups, and that the people group primarily referred to is Philistine. So these are converted Philistines who are serving under the command of David. Or some believe the Karathites actually came from the island of Crete, that they were Cretans. Crete is off, off over here at the very southern end of the, of the Aegean Sea, which is possible because Cretans and Philistines and, and uh, Cypriots all tended to kind of blend together in the world at that particular time. Whatever they were, they were loyal and fiercely loyal to David. Later on, there will be, and we're going to read about these, three revolts are launched against David, two by his own sons. And in every one of those revolts, the Karathites and the Pelathites just stood shoulder to shoulder with David right through it all, and Benea was there. They were loyal to the king and, and served him well and were in no way traitorous to him at any point in time. The result will be in the end that Benaiah will supersede Joab as commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel. That will be his payback in the long run. That will occur under Solomon because Solomon will do in Joab because David will suggest that that's what he should do. And then lastly, as part of the royal administration, we find David's sons. Now knowing what we do looking ahead about some of David's sons. We wonder if David was too wise to put them in uh, any positions of authority. The word translated here as chief ministers is actually the Hebrew word Kohen, K-O-H-E-N. And the Hebrew word Kohen means priest. But the word obviously does not mean priest here because David's sons are not of the tribe of Levi. Neither is David. Uh, they're of the tribe of Judah and they're not priestly in any way. So the Septuagint version, we, we've talked about that before, the first f Greek translation, major Greek translation of the Hebrew, which was made about 2,200 years ago, translates the term as priests, uh, princes of the court, calls them princes of the court. And in 1 Chronicles 18, they're called chiefs at the king's side. So what we have here are David's sons standing alongside him <coughs> as apprentices as apprentice rulers of the land. And he's training them and giving them certain responsibilities and they're helping him carry out his rule by at least transmitting his messages to various persons along the way. And, and that's the best we can uh, interpret from, from this. Looking at the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel, we see another example of how God works in the life of a person dedicated to him.
and how God changes that person more and more into his own image. And so let's read the first eight verses of chapter 9. Then David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? This chapter gives us further insight into the exemplary character of this man David. Even though David had reached the pinnacle of power, he was the emperor of an empire. Humanly speaking, that's as far as you, high as you can get. The emperor of an empire. His acclaim was spread far and wide. There were kings hundreds of miles away who knew the name Dawi. And yet, in the midst of it all, he had not forgotten his dearest friend, Jonathan. Certainly in his heart. Can you imagine how David felt in his heart, oh, that Jonathan could be here to stand with me, to share in my glory and in my power. I think he dearly wanted that. But he had made a promise to Jonathan years ago before any of this had happened, while he was still fleeing from, his, from Jonathan's father, David. Made a promise, and he said that he would not cut off his loving kindness from Jonathan's house. He was now constrained by love to fulfill, fulfill that promise. He had achieved every possible goal he could, he could achieve for himself and for the kingdom of God, at least to that point. And yet burning in his heart, and I think these, this fire was fanned by God himself, to remember the promise that he had made. It would have been easy to forget this promise. Oh, well, I made that promise a long time ago. Nobody knew about it except Jonathan. And uh, as far as I know, nobody's left from the house of Saul anyway. So why don't I just forget this promise and move on? Uh, I've got other things to do. I've got to go stand on my rooftop and do some other things. God's Holy Spirit was in David. And since God is love, the love of God drove David to keep his promise, his covenant. One, one of the things that came through to me, at least, from the messages that Jim Cimbala gave uh, at council was that the love of God is really a powerful driving force within the church. If the love is not there, you don't have anything. Of course, Paul makes that quite clear in 1 Corinthians 13. You can go through all kinds of ritual, but if you don't have love, forget it. You're wasting your time. It makes no difference to anyone. This driving force of God's love should characterize every believer. It should characterize all of our lives. And the Apostle John, who is often called the Apostle of Love, or the one whom Jesus loved, in, in, in his first letter, 
I'd like to read a few verses from 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, John writes these words, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, of course, this is obviously, you all know, this isn't the love the world talks about and sings about in all their silly songs. This is the deep, abiding love of God himself that causes one to lay down his life for his friend. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this love, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So that ought to characterize the church. More than anything else, the church ought to be characterized by love. Love for one another. Regardless of denominational title, there ought to be a love that emanates through the body of Christ worldwide. And because that's the love that God manifested to us when he was willing to, to send the second person of the triune Godhead to take on a human form and to die. And, and I believe this is the love which is driving David here to do something that he could have easily forgotten and, and it's far in the past, let's just forget the whole thing and, and move on. But to do something that specifically illustrates love that would be seen by all the people. And, and Mephibosheth himself say, why are you doing this for somebody who's a dead dog? And what good was a crippled person in that society? Couldn't provide for himself, couldn't fight in the army, couldn't do anything that men were supposed to do in those societies. So he was as good as dead. And so David took such a person to illustrate what God's love really meant. I, I don't know how much impact it made on the people of Israel, but should make a big impact upon our lives. One of David's ministers must have remembered that Ziba had been Jonathan, uh, had been one of Saul's servants. Not exactly where Ziba functioned within the hierarchy of Saul's administration, we don't know, doesn't say. It, it seems that he was the ward of Saul's estate, however. So he must have been fairly high in the ranking under Saul. But he was aware, when, when, when uh, David quizzed him, he said, do you know if any members of the house of Saul are alive? He says, yeah, there's one. He's the son of Jonathan. That must have caused David's heart to quicken all, all of a sudden. Not only was there a, man, a person alive, but he was Jonathan's son of all the people that could have been. And he says his name is Mephibosheth, which means exterminator of shame. He is also called in 1 Chronicles Meribal, or Meribel, which means striver or warrior against Baal. And Baal, of course, is often referred to as shame. Ziba identified Mephibosheth, giving his condition and giving his location. It's interesting that Ziba immediately pointed out that Mephibosheth was crippled. I mean, he would just kind of put it all together in the immediate description. Here's this man, Mephibosheth, by the way, he's also crippled. 2 Samuel 4, 4, this is after Saul and Jonathan have died on the battlefield and the news comes back. Now, Jonathan's Saul's son had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel that they had died. His nurse took him up and fled, 
and it came about in her hurry to flee that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. We don't know all the details of how that happened uh, because he was five, so, you know, if she was carrying him, it could be she fell on him or dropped him off a cliff or what, we don't know exactly what happened there, but anyway, he fell in such a way that both of his feet became lame. It's very interesting how those things happen. In the Midland Church, where we were last Sunday, a man gave a, a testimony that when he was a teenager, he had this full head of really nice brown hair. He was in a car wreck, and he hit the windshield and cut his head in just a little place here. And all his hair fell out, and he never got a single hair back again. I mean, uh, what? You know, what does that mean? <laughs> How does that happen? <laughs> I just thought he was trying to be a power man, you know, but, but this is the way he'd been ever since he was 15, you know, it's really tough for him as a teenager, of course. This not always viewed as a power <laughs> hair, hairstyle when you're 15. But, you know, th terrible things can happen and, and it almost looks like nothing ever happened to somebody and uh, someone else, some little tiny thing happens and they're, they're seriously maimed for life. It, it's very strange how that happens and uh, how it happened that Mephibosheth was dropped or fell in such a way that he was crippled for the rest of life. I don't know, but that was the situation here. And God will use that, however, to his glory. And I think that's one of the important truths that comes out of this kind of a study. If any of you were listening to Erwin Lutzer uh, this morning, he was emphasizing the fact that God chooses all of us to have a place in the ministry of the body and no place is one to look down upon. No place is, is a position so low that you should feel bad about it, and no position is so high that you should be proud about it. That every position is important within the church, whatever it is, a position of service. And here you have a man like Mephibosheth, and he considers himself to be worthless because he's crippled in his feet. He has no use whatsoever. But David sees him differently. David says, you come and you sit at my table because I want to manifest my love for your father upon you, even though you are of the royal house of Saul, the enemy house, the house that pursued me for years. I want to show the love of God to you in you. And so Mephibosheth becomes a powerful example of what God's love can mean. He's been living in this place. Now, I have the map up here partly to show that Lodabar was somewhere right, you see the T in Taub, it was somewhere right over in there. It's, it's, it has not been specifically identified, but it's thought to have been a little bit south of Sea of Galilee, slightly east of the uh, river there, of the Jordan. The name Lodabar means without pasture, pasture, without, not pastor, that's what we've been. <laughs> without <laughs> pasture, without, pa we've had plenty of pastors but not senior pastor. We, we, we had wonderful people like Paul here to uh, carry us through without pasture. So it was probably a fairly dry place. And who's this guy Mac here? Well, we don't really know. All he knows is of the tribe of Ephraim, so he's not of the Saulite family. He's not a uh, Benjamite. So why is he taking care of Mephibosheth? Why is he housing this person? It could be a dangerous thing to do. House somebody from the defeated house, royal house. But Mac here was a person who had compassion. And this is illustrated, first of all, by the fact that he took the risk of housing, bringing within his household and, and caring for someone who belonged to the, the defeated royal house. 
and someone who was crippled and couldn't repay him. But we find something else about this man later on. In the 17th chapter of 2 Samuel, in verse 27. Now when David had come to Maonim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, of the sons of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogelim, brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentil, parched seeds, honey, curd, sheep, cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said the people were hungry, are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. David has fled from the rebellion of Absalom and this man ministers to David in his need. So here we have a man, Machir, who illustrates godly compassion. He cares for a crippled outcast, and then he goes and serves a king who has been chased out of power by his own rebellious son. Machir is a man who too illustrates the love of God. David is delighted that a surviving member of Saul's family was the son of Jonathan. To him it couldn't have been a greater gift. And he asked, he sent an escort to bring this man to Jerusalem. Uh, David had assured, sent messages of assurance to Mephibosheth that, you know, I, I want to honor you, I, I want to bless you, I want to help you, I want to be kind to you. But I, you can imagine Mephibosheth as he was going to Jerusalem in his heart, deep inside, he says, I'm going to my death. I know it. I'm going to my death. I'm the only surviving member of the Sauline house and, and this guy's going to execute me and uh, that's where I'm going. Because that's the custom. Worldwide, that's a custom. If you overthrow a house, you wipe it out because you don't want any member of that house to rise up and become a rallying point for opposition to the new regime. I mean, this is so powerfully illustrated to us in the early part of the 20th century when the uh, Bolsheviks overthrew Russia and their hold was very, very tenuous. I mean, the hold on by a little thread and they had Tsar Nicholas and his family in, they had them in, in their control. And when it looked like things were going to get really bad for them because the whites were attacking the reds, they decided to execute the Tsar and his wife and all of his kids. Why? To deny the whites a rallying point. There's nobody to rally around if the, if, if the czar and his entire household are dead. There's no one to succeed from that family to the throne. You've denied the rallying point. The whites have nothing to fight for. The reds have everything they have to fight for because if they lose, they're all going to be executed for having killed the czar. And so it was a brilliant move on the part of Lenin. And that's typically the way it's done. You overthrow a house, you wipe out everybody so that there's nobody of the previous house to, to come back and challenge you. So that's what Mephibosheth thought was going to happen, but it didn't. He groveled before David. He groveled, I think, part, partly in reverence, but partly hoping that to obtain mercy. But David just shocked his, well, I don't know if he had socks on or not, but shocked, <laughs> shocked his sandals off. Uh, do not fear because I'm going to show kindness to you and this is what I'm going to do for you. I am going to give to you all of the lands of your grandfather Saul. And not only that, you're going to eat at my table every day. I mean, this guy was taken out of hiding. This guy was taken off of welfare, living in somebody's house secretly and exalted to the king's table and given all of his lands back so that he's no longer a dead dog. He's got the income from his grandfather's lands for his own personal fortune and future. This is the love of God. This is what God has done for us. 
And thinking about this, this verse came into my mind when I was thinking about Mephibosheth's reaction because Mephibosheth falls and his face prostrates himself before David and just doesn't know how to show thanks to David. And this verse came to my mind from Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. How, how much more? Should we prostrate ourselves before God because he has delivered us from a far worse fate than Mephibosheth was experiencing, from eternally being cast out of his presence? We've been called into his presence, and we should be on our face before him in humility and honor, as Mephibosheth was before David, only even more so. Well, we'll go on in the ninth chapter of uh, 2 Samuel next week. <clears throat>